Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Joel Beakey. Dr. Beakey is President and Professor of Systematic Theology and Homiletics at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also a distinguished graduate of Westminster. We'll be talking with him today about his journey into ministry and his approach to leadership and productivity. The Ministry Network podcast is sponsored by Westminster Theological Seminary. To learn more about their new online offerings, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree. Now, let's talk with Dr. Beakey. Dr. Beakey, thank you for joining us here. My pleasure. We're so looking forward to covering a number of topics today. So looking forward to your insight. To set the context for our discussion, I was wondering if you could first walk us through your journey into Christian ministry. Well, I did not have a typical journey into Christian ministry. I was converted when I was 14. And so I was, when I came under conviction of sin, I floundered for maybe 18 months and was just under deep, deep conviction, expecting to go to hell anytime and took refuge in my dad's bookcase, which was full of Puritans. And as I read the Puritans, I got more hope, I got some comfort, some help. But it wasn't until 18 months later that I really broke through and experienced the reality and the power of the gospel for my own soul. I was extremely shy, inordinately so. And when I was working for my father one day, he was a carpenter, I was actually pulling weeds in the front yard of a house he built because the guy who built the house didn't want to put weed killer on it. He was very fussy. And so I was working for three weeks pulling weeds all by myself with a little blanket and not really meditating on anything. And I know this will sound rather mystical, but I'll just tell you what happened. Just, it wasn't a physical voice, but it sure felt like one. But I just had this overwhelming conviction. Go forth and preach the gospel to all men, yea, to all the nations. And I stood up, I looked around, there was no one there. And I was absolutely overwhelmed and terrified because I was the shyest guy on planet Earth. And there's no way, absolutely no way, I could be a minister of the gospel. On the other hand, I had just been delivered a few months before that, wonderfully and powerfully, and Christ was my life. And I had just begun to start to talk to a couple people because I couldn't hold my mouth about the beauty of Christ. And so I went to my pastor and said, you know, I just had this very, very strange experience. And he said very wisely, well, let's see if the Lord will confirm it in time to come. But that was the beginning. And from that day until today, I have really, deep down, never doubted for a single moment that I was called to full lifetime ministry, even though it was absolutely impossible. But then what happened was I was so overwhelmed with the gospel that it wasn't long that some of my shyness began to break as I talked to other people. And then I was appointed youth group leader, and I started speaking at youth day conference camps and so on. And it was terrifying for me, but I felt compelled to because out of my love for Christ. And uh, the Lord did help me in those occasions. And then I started getting other people coming to me and saying, do you feel called to the ministry? Things like that. So one thing led to another. And when I was 20, I came forward to um, my denomination. And they, they listen to your calling. They listen to your conversion. And if you get accepted, that's a major, major event in that denomination. 
It's not like, well, you just decide to go to seminary. They approve you ahead of time, not behind time. And so the first time they did not approve me, the next year I came back and they did. And so I went to Ontario, studied under one minister for four years, and then was ordained when I was 25 in Sioux Center, Iowa. I was in charge of 700 farmers and 1,300 other people in three moderatorships. I was the only minister in four churches. I had 2,000 people under my care. So it was... It was wow. So you're overseeing four churches at that time. Yeah, well, as well, well, I mean, I was pastor of one church. I was a moderator of three others, but I was doing the, the weddings, the funerals, and it was a very busy time. And then I was called to New Jersey, and I went there and served there for five and a half years. And while I was there, I went down to Westminster Seminary and got my PhD. And just as I was finishing the last chapters of my dissertation, 34 years ago, I came to Grand Rapids and have been here ever since. Wow. The rest is history, as they say. The rest is history, yeah. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your experience at Westminster in the PhD program? Yes, it was a very good experience, actually a life-changing experience for me. I loved the classes. I just drank in every word that Sinclair Ferguson said. And Claire Davis, I learned a lot in church history from him. I was in the Reformation, post-Reformation. I learned a lot from Rick Gamble. And I started the courses by thinking I was going to do a dissertation in predestination. So I did five major papers in predestination, then decided No, the major concerns of my people were really wrestling over assurance of faith. So I switched gears halfway through, and I did my dissertation on assurance of faith. And that changed my life. That really gave me not only a lot more assurance as I study the Reformers and the Puritans, but also sent a trajectory out into my ministry of comforting and seeking to help God's people grow in assurance of faith. And then it wasn't until last, well, maybe two years ago, when I had a sabbatical, I actually dusted off those old five papers on predestination and put them in a book that Van and Hook and Ruprecht published on the, called Sovereign Issues of, Debated Issues of Sovereign Predestination. So I did end up using all that work after all. But yeah, Westminster did a lot for me and it impacted me lifelong. The books that I published before I went to Westminster, I actually rewrote them and republish them. And everything after Westminster, I mean, I would still change a few things here and there, but I don't think I'd ever rewrite any of them. So yeah, it was a real blessing for me to go there. Wow. Praise the Lord. Well, we've been so thankful for your partnership in ministry and that with Puritan, your seminary. To be honest, Dr. Beakey, I don't know of anyone who is as productive as you are. Can you walk us through some of the different roles that you're in charge of right now? I mean, it's such a huge amount, so many different ways the Lord is using you. I'd love to hear some of those ministries that you're overseeing. Well, I do wear a few caps, and thanks to my wife, because she lets me work very long hours, these things have developed over the years. So yes, I'm president of a Puritan Reform Seminary, and we have a few hundred students now, and I teach systematic theology and homiletics here. I'm the pastor in a church of 750 people here in Grand Rapids, Heritage Reformed Church. I put about a quarter of my time, maybe a third, into the church work here. And then I'm uh, the leader for the Reformation Heritage Books, which I began 25 years ago. And that little hobby became a business now. It's nonprofit, but it's become much, much larger. 
And I'm the husband of Mary, very special wife, and three wonderful children who are now all married. And our oldest grandchild is four, and we have seven of them. Five we've seen, and two are in the womb. So this year, actually, all three of our children are having children. So that's exciting. Yeah, so that's a, a lot of lot of fun, a lot of fun. And then I spend a lot of my time reading books. I read, we publish about 40 books a year, and I, I'm the final editor of all 40. So I read every word that we publish. And another big part of my life is approving what books we'll carry in the bookstore. We carry 4,500 books from 70 different publishers, and I supervise that process and try to stay pretty involved with that. And then I serve, of course, on a bunch of committees. When you're seminary president, it seems like there's always meetings after meetings after meetings. So yeah, I love everything I do, though, and I think that's, that's important. I just love the ministry. I love promoting Reformed preaching and teaching. And, and uh, so every time I look at my watch, I wish it were not so late. I never have a desire to say, oh, I, I wish I, I'm, I'm getting tired of working today. So I can still work from... 8.30 in the morning to midnight and not be the least bit tired of working. I just love the work of the Lord. Wow, that's amazing. And you're a prodigious writer. I mean, how many volumes and articles have you written? It might be hard to keep track. Probably too many. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I have a secretary who uh, I get a pile of things I've done and she records them. So I do have an up-to-date list, but I've written about 115 books, I guess. And it's probably close to 3,000 articles right now. But writing was a ministry I was called to when I was 16, when I was called to the ministry. I also felt called to a writing ministry because the denomination I grew up in, most of the ministers were from the Netherlands, and they didn't write terribly well in English. And so uh, I got assigned being editor of all the denomination's periodicals and being president of its book publishing committee when I was in my 20s, late 20s or so, and early 30s. And so my entire life has been for writing as well as for preaching. So I often feel closest to God when I write. So now at this point in my life, writing is like a holy compulsion. I've got, if I live to be as old as Methuselah, James, <laughs> I don't think I'd complete the list of things I want to write. So I have a whole list of pages of them, 40 some more books I want to write. And I just, I'll never make it, but once every three, four months, I look at the list and I reshape the order. So I just try to go down the list and follow my deadline dates with other publishers and try to do what I can. Well, certainly the level of productivity you're capable of is a very unique gift the Lord has given you. But I still wonder, how are you able to be so productive? And what tips do you give the students under your care at the seminary to help be as faithful and fruitful as they can? Well, I do give them a lecture on time management. And one of the things I say in that lecture is, put your life into three piles, the must do, the should do, and the I'd like to do, and strive with God's help to make all three piles, I like to do piles, so that the things you must do, the things that have concrete deadlines today, you're really joyfully serving the Lord in those things. And then move to the things you should do, but maybe aren't due for a couple days or a week or two. And then move to things that maybe you just like to do because, well, you just like to do them and there's no deadlines at all, which at this point in my life very seldom happens. So it's, <laughs> it's paramount for me that all the must-dos and should-dos that I love to do all of those things. And so, yeah. Well, I also tell the students, please don't try to imitate me. I just have a very unusual wife. Usually when people ask me this question, I just say, it's my wife. That's all I say. 
because we just have a, just a wonderful, wonderful marriage. I love that woman like crazy, and I think her feelings are mutual for me. And, you know, we talk, we walk. We actually spend quite a bit of time together, three meals a day. I live right next door to the seminary, and um, I'll come home 11.30 at night, maybe midnight, and we'll go for a walk, we'll talk for a while, go to bed at one o'clock or something. So I do get time with her, but she just sees my ministry as a calling from God, in some ways is very involved in it with me, and she just lets me work long hours. So yeah, I'm used to working 90 hours a week, maybe, I don't know, what. never added it up exactly, but so that helps me a lot, having a lot of time. I do most of my writing at night. At night, I get a second wind, so the phone stops ringing, and I can write. And I'm not terribly gifted, James, and I'm just kind of like an average guy, but my dad taught me to work hard. All my brothers and my sisters all work very hard. I think probably the one thing I have going for me, beside my wife, is that I am organized. So it doesn't look like it in my study sometimes because there's papers everywhere, but when I wake up in the morning, I know what I need to do that day. I know the order in which I need to do it. I know what I've got to accomplish this week. I know how much time it takes me to do things. So I know the importance of leaving open window space, about 10% of your day that you don't have scheduled because it will fill up with other things. So that type of thing. So I think long hours, good wife, <laughs> organization. And then one more thing, zeal. You've got to have passion for the work of the Lord. You've got to love it with every fiber in your body. And you just want to live for the glory of God. Give me a single eye, Lord, thy name to glorify. That's my prayer. So every morning I wake up, I pray for that. And I pray, make me useful and make me fruitful today. Every morning I pray those things. In your own leadership, what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced and how have you sought to navigate them? Well, earlier on in my ministry, I faced huge challenges, huge challenges. And um, I don't know if it'd be good to go into detail on those, but let me say this, that the last 25 years of my ministry have been much more fruitful in a more, not a challenge-free way, but, you know, all the leaders kind of rowing the boat the same way. And when you have severe challenges in ministry, it zaps your energy. I mean, I would rather work 110 hours a week without huge problems then work 20 hours a week with major problems. I think you'd be more tired. So I do know what it is to face huge, huge, huge problems in life and ministry. And God has broken me through those challenges. But in that brokenness, I do believe with all my heart that it has had the fruit of making me more of a pastor and able to relate to broken people. And so that's had a profound impact on me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change those early years of numerous challenges for anything in the world. I've needed every adversity the Lord has ever sent my way. And I really mean that. So I think in terms of regular challenges in ministry, I think prayer is critical. I think having one or two people in your life who are full of wisdom, mature, godly people, you could be totally confidential with, is also critical. I also think that we need to take a long-haul vision, a long-term vision with challenges. I often lose half of one night's sleep over a challenge. And I've learned to recognize that, that no matter how much I pray, no matter how much I think, no matter how much it eats away at me, the first night is probably going to be restless. But usually, as I've grown older, after one night, usually give me 24 hours, and I come out of that 
challenge a bit and feel more comfortable to go forward and seem to settle on a way of direction after prayer, talking with others, thinking things through. And what I've experienced over and over again in my life is that when you have God close a door for you, say there's a challenge and something goes shut for you and it's very disappointing, he usually has a bigger one to open. And you just need to wait on him and look for direction. I get a lot of encouragement out of this text. What I do now thou knowest not, but thou shalt know hereafter. And so I try to trust Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So I really believe that every detail of my life is directed by God. Every hair of my head is numbered. And every challenge, every disappointment will work together for my good. And that gives a lot of encouragement. doesn't mean that when you go through the challenge, you don't have some downtime. But that's circumstantial discouragement. Temporary circumstantial discouragement is different from abiding depression. And I've been spared from that all my life, despite the huge challenges I've had to go through. And then I think the other thing I've mentioned here is surround yourself with good people. Who your fellow elders and deacons are is absolutely critical. Who the people you employ in some ministries is is absolutely critical. I, I try to spend extra time to make sure I get good people, people who are strongly Christian, love the Lord Jesus Christ. Every person I hire, I ask them, even if it's against the law, I ask them, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity? Do you have a heart for this ministry? If they say no, if they hesitate, I don't hire them. And I don't want anybody working for me at the seminary at RHB who considers this just a job. I want them to consider it a vocatio, a vocation, a calling from Almighty God. So get good people around you who are gifted and whose personalities are not only zealous for the work of the Lord, but are also not cantankerous. People that are argumentative, people that are cantankerous, people that have a chip on their shoulder, they can really drag you down. So try to hire people who are a little more upbeat, have assurance of faith in Christ, who love the Lord, who are eager to do the Lord's work, who have a cheerful disposition, and who are gifted. If you do that, that will save you a lot, a lot of grief from all kinds of challenges. That's great advice. Join us next time as we continue our conversation with Dr. Beakey. In the meantime, you can visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree to learn more about the new online offerings available at Westminster Theological Seminary.